0: You can imagine the situation with just a, a long transit, just waiting there, not knowing what your faith is, whether you're going to go to Australia, to America, to Canada, or might not even go anywhere and end up going back to Iraq if you had to.
1: G'day and My name is Ninos Kandah, and this is my maiden episode of hosting the Assyrian Podcast. As you can tell, I'm based in Sydney, Australia, and I'm looking forward to sharing many more fascinating Assyrian stories from down under in time. Episode 105 is the story of a gentleman I only recently had the pleasure of acquainting. His story seized my attention one day last year. It's one of triumph, born in Iraq, left at a young age, lived as a refugee in Syria, before having to start again in Australia. The setback of having to start from scratch twice, not to mention the local antagonism. Now, having been born in the West myself, I found it so hard to comprehend, and I wondered that I might just give up if faced with such obstacles. But our guest took it in his stride. Upon arrival in Sydney in 2012, he visited the Sydney Opera House, knowing next to no English. Eight years later, he completed a degree in architecture along with a prestigious Jørn Utzen Scholarship in Copenhagen, Denmark, named after the very person that conceived the Sydney Opera House. My guest today is Ogjord Uwul. Like the many stories of Assyrians moving to the West, Ogjord's story is quite the opposite of a sob story. It carries an unshakable message of resilience, and the reason I wanted to interview him is to learn about his perspectives. How does such an ambitious, intelligent and successful person see the world? How does he see our community? Can we and must we all be as resilient and ambitious as Olga? Look, I can't say or advise on that, but I do believe through this, we can all learn more about us and ourselves, community and individual. As an aside, this interview was conducted using social distancing. It was a challenge, but we eventually overcame it. So whether you're listening to this while driving, exercising, at work or at home, please stay safe and thanks for listening. Before we get to this week's interview, if this is the first time you're listening to The Assyrian Podcast, or you haven't done so yet, we would love for you to subscribe. You can do this however you're listening to us. We'd also love for you to rate and review us wherever you listen. Also, in every Assyrian is a story. If you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. Lastly, The Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York, for listeners based in the United States. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication. He has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or on telephone 847-982-9516. And now... For Ogrool, oh oh, please enjoy. Oh God, thanks for joining us on the Assyrian podcast.
0: Thank you, appreciate that. So, how is social distancing treating you? Oh, social distancing, man, it's been so—it's actually been so hard to kind of stay at home and work, and now even study from home. So, uh, there's been a bit—it's been a bit painful. But I've been trying to put the exercise in every morning, keep my body, keep my body going, and my mind working. So it's going all right, I guess. And the weather's beautiful, so we can't complain. The great weather is not helping. It does, but at the same time, you'd rather it not be raining. You can just like put your feet outside of the sun a little bit, sit in the sun for like five, 10 minutes. It's better than having storms and, and thunder and make you just want to sleep. You know what? we got to deal with what we have, right? And um, I think that's kind of, of my biggest philosophy in life. Just you have to deal with the card. What is it called? Hand of cards. Deal given with the to cards. You and you guys. That is going to play it to right. You. So, yeah. whatever situation we are in, we just got to have to try and make the best out of it. I guess.
1: Indeed. So, oh God, when were you born? Where were you born?
0: What's what's your background? So, first of all, I was born in 1995 in uh, Baghdad, Iraq, and yeah, I've been, I was born there, and then. Were well, in in yeah, daughter No, in Baghdad Ah, uh, new Baghdad. Yeah, which is like a. <laughs> what well, is in Baghdad? But it's called it's called technically called the new Baghdad because it was like a meant to be a new suburb, but it wasn't a, a new suburb. Now, yeah, I was born I was born in Iraq and again witnessed the war in two thousand and three, and managed to escape the persecution that was happening in two thousand and six, and actually migrated to next door neighbors in Syria, and stayed there as asylum seeker for about six years, where I think it was. Was pretty tough there as well. Some people uh, not some, some people imagine it uh, as like a journey. Oh, you just travel to another country. It's actually no. You had staff from Zero there again. You had staff from Zero, leave your family and friends all in, in Iraq and go to Syria. Also they speak a different dialect of Arabic. So that mean you that meant that my Iraqi Arabic was a kind of a flag on my head. They know you're Iraqi, they're not you're not Syrian, so then they treat you a bit differently. Still cop the people there are amazing. I love them and I've had so many friends from there and good friends but at the same time some really racist people that did not like you, uh, you were, where were you in syria um in syria we were in, in the capital damascus when was that yeah so um i went yeah so i went there in 2000 from 2006 to 2012 we went in syria and i guess i guess that was a big journey that's when i kind of i think my journey started of trying to kind of stand up for myself and do the best i can with what, what i have and you can imagine the situation was just a a long transit, just waiting there, not knowing what your faith is, whether you're going to go to Australia, to America, to Canada, or might not even go anywhere and end up going back to Iraq if you had to. Because many people got stuck there and didn't make it out. So eventually we got kind of blessed to make it to Australia in 2012, 20th of February 2012, if I'm correct. So yeah, we managed to come to Australia, which we were, I think, happy about because we had some family here uncle and aunties and also makes more extended family in australia and i think i was praying to go to australia because of the weather i didn't want to go to canada or anywhere else where it's too cold so kind of got that kind of got that in my way yeah and
1: back to nothing
0: again yeah again and, and there you go exactly back to square zero by the time you built yourself in syria and managed to have some friends and some relationships and connection understand the area i i spoke I spoke Syrian Arabic really good that people would have never believe that I was actually Iraqi. So again, you come back to Australia and then you start from zero. You start from zero. I remember how shocked I was when I got to the airport and I got the like, "Hey, going, mate? Good day. Welcome to Australia. Good day, mate." And I was like, "What <laughs> is this? What is going on here?" And that was that was kind of a starting point for me because uh, yeah, because I, I like didn't didn't know much English actually. Like all I knew was hi. My name is. My name is this, this, that, like the really, really basic English, like really basic and started from scratch again. And I think it was hard at the start from scratch here because, again, you have no like culture. is very different. You get the cultural clash. You get the kind of financial starting from scratch. You get the building your home, not not just house, having a house, renting a house and actually build a home. And that sense of a home in a different country and different context was pretty hard building those relationships, and I guess going to school and not speaking good English, again, put a a big flag on my head and a big target for a lot of bullies and a lot of people that thought it was fun to make fun of the kids that quote-unquote off the boat or migrants. Very harsh.
1: And it was your second time dealing with this.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was kind of my second um, interference with it. But at the same time, this was a a bit more in a sense, harder in a, in terms of the, at least with Arabic, you can speak some sort of uh, Arabic to another dialogue and you can kind of defend yourself, but not knowing English and being laughed at every time you say something is pretty hard. It kind of tends to put people down and get them to become very enclosed and very not shy and don't want to speak out because they don't want to defend themselves because then people are going to make more joke about what they said. Yeah and i think that was i mean did you find the middle east more uh, well, culturally similar no 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 i think definitely cultural similarities definitely again there's there's different different countries have different things but again in the context of the of the middle east and the context of the middle eastern culture as a big umbrella there's a lot of similarities between the iraqi and the syrian culture but when you when you migrate from that culture from that context to a different totally different context um, you kind of definitely do get a bigger cultural clash with Australian culture, yeah. So I guess that was that was a bit of a challenge. But at the same time, I think my absolute biggest challenge was actually just the language. Because if you know the language, you can communicate, you can learn, you can defend yourself, you can make friends, you can speak in class, you can learn. But once you don't know the language, that's I think the biggest obstacle for you because you can't communicate and you kind of get stuck in the situation. Mm. So if you ever release a book.
1: I am coming up with a title for you. Yeah, three zeros.
0: Three zeros. Yep. <laughs> Why?
1: Well, because you started oh, yeah. from scratch <laughs> three, three, three times. Three zeros. Three zeros. Iraq, Syria, and Australia. Yeah, well,
0: Iraq, you don't start. I don't. I don't think you technically start from zero. Because I guess. I guess this is a big thing that many people don't understand about the problem of immigration or migrating as a whole family. So I guess when you when I was born in Iraq, my dad worked really well, a really good job. My mom had established a house. We had connection. We know people. So you kind of are built within this network of connection if you kind of imagine it like a network. And all of a sudden, you can actually tap into different network. You need connection here. You ask dad. You need connection there. You ask mom. You ask auntie. You ask uncle. That is all disappears once you come to Australia. Yes, you do have some extended family, extended family and you can use their connection, but it's mm-hmm. very limited. It's not like... You're actually being born here and your parents are established, got a really, a really good rhythm here. They know people, people know people. And just that, in a sense, that support network in terms of financial or, either, or as well as social network, when you start from zero with those two things, they're really, really painful. And that's why I salute all the like migrant parents that come here, make it up, work, have kids and grow their kids to the best way. I literally salute them because it's such a hard job that is underrated by a lot of people.
1: Indeed, indeed. Quite a number of Assyrians have arrived in the West post-1991. They've spent years in transit countries. They wake up each day not knowing what the future holds for them and their families. That uncertainty, yeah. like your life, yeah. it's on pause. It makes it so easy to give
0: up, doesn't it? It is definitely really easy to give up. How do you give up? You've got all these struggles, right? And you've got all these hopes and all these dreams, hopefully, that you're trying to achieve or you're trying to get on to. So I guess a really big role that plays is kind of the circumstances that appeal to you. So if you're faced with so many difficulties all the time, all of a sudden people start giving up and I guess they lose motivation or they lose hope and I think that's stronger than motivation because motivation is nothing. But actually losing hope in life or losing hope in what's to come next is a really, really significant thing that happens to people and I guess that's how they give up because they they can't imagine, they can't dream, they can't see the future. So imagine yourself being in Syria stuck there it's like it's like an analogy for it it's like a train station right so let's say you were traveling from iraq to like a, a destination because you actually don't even know your destination so you get to syria and you kind of they go like to you okay you have to wait here for your train and we don't know how long you're gonna wait here but you know what just hang on and you don't and even know your here.
1: destination
0: exactly at the same that's that's another annoying thing you, you might not even know some people do know because some people do apply for specific refugee programs In general, when you go under the UN kind of umbrella, they can actually send you whenever and whenever is wherever is good because you want to just go and start establishing yourself because you know that Syria part is just a temporary station. And and imagine living in that temporary station or that temporary situation for six years, and this that seems a lot for us, right? And I know people that lived in that situation for 12, 14, 16 years. Could you imagine like 16 years of being unstable knowing that you're going to go or hoping that you can go somewhere else where it's better and i think that is when people start giving up and i i don't i don't blame them i don't blame them the situation actually turned out really bad luckily luckily i've have i have a very strong family and strong parents and they've always been that kind of the lighthouse through these dark times through this foggy situation where they kept me on track and kept me Believing and, and being able to dream, and also they've worked so hard in their life, and I they not sure if they passed that through the DNA or just passed it through my, through them teaching me how to work hard and just seeing them by example. Yeah. So, what year did you
1: arrive in Australia?
0: So I arrived in 2012, and I I believe it was February, either February or March. I don't want to make a statement that I'm gonna regret later. But I think, <laughs> I think it was 20th of February. um, Wow, eight years? Yeah, yeah, it's been eight years.
1: Do you remember your first day in Australia? Tell us about what you did
0: when you first arrived. So, I do remember that first day actually. We arrived... The international Airport. Of course, we didn't come on a boat. That's a, that's my favourite joke to everyone. Everyone's like, "Oh, you're, you're a refugee off a boat." I'm like, "No, actually, off a plane." So that's uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a dad joke, but it's about it. <laughs> and there's a
1: bit of a there's a bit of a complex in Australia about being a
0: refugee you're arriving by boat. Exactly, as refugees all arrive on boats, but we don't actually not all of us. Anyway, so we did arrive to the international airport in Sydney, and um, yeah, it was it was at night time, so I think it was like six thirty or seven pm again, we were welcomed by my uncle and aunties and extended family. And that was amazing to see everyone there because we've not seen them for 12, 16 years. And I've not seen my auntie for 40 years. I guess that was really heartwarming because you get to see the people that are here. And it was really a big relief moment. Took a couple of photos, then went to my uncle's house, had dinner. And yeah, I think that's how the journey started. And then I think a second or a third day already or second day, i had asked my cousin to take me to the opera house because I really, really, uh, I've seen the images of the opera house. So the first thing you search on on Sydney back in Syria when you had a really slow internet is a picture of the opera house that pops up. And I'm like, I don't really want to go and see this place. So yeah, we did. I think on the second or third day, she took me, me and my brother to the, the opera house. And I think that's kind of how the journey started and registered in um something called, intensive english center in in Cogra and because they didn't let me go to the high school because my english was not adequate enough to to go to high school because I wasn't going to go do, do good so I went to this course and kind of tried to make my english as good as possible and that uh, period given to me and then uh, managed to actually get over that in In how long did you complete that course? In long time. I think maybe two terms so six so 4 to 6 months. I think I was out of that situation and went to high school and I think that's kind of when the journey started.
1: Right, your journey to become an architect. What was it about architecture that really appealed to you? Did you
0: always want to be an architect from, from when you were young? Well, I think, I think I've think i always wanted to be actually, I've always wanted to be a civil engineer, not an architect because my dad is a civil engineer and a project manager and I've always, always, like, kind of had that influence on me. And I've kind of always looked up to what he does and really enjoyed it. The kind of the opera house definitely emphasized a big cultural thing in Australia. And also, you look at it, you look at the shapes, you look at that <clears throat> geometry that was created. And back then, for the 15-slash-16-year-old me, it was a really big deal. And I really enjoyed it. And I really wanted to see it in person. Because also, that, in my head, made sense. Like, I'm in Australia. If I go see this thing, that means I'm actually in Australia. Of that confirmations and once since I got there i was I loved it I loved it and since then every time I go to the opera house, it just amazed me that I fall in love with it more and more every time and I find a better angle every time and I take a better photo every time and it's so much it's just a masterpiece yeah,
1: I absolutely agree uh, whenever I go there, I still am struck by how beautiful that building is.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 like every environment. If there is too much sun, not much sun, all that it's creates a piece of art. Exactly, it's a piece of art, and definitely that does play a big role in then in inspiring me to be an architect. But um not like not very directly in a sense, but more like in the background that probably had happened in my subconscious thinking, uh, subconscious mind. Sorry, and not really kind of oh yes, opera house. Oh my god, I want to be an architect. But it, it was kind of part of the process. But I slowly transitioned from a civil wanted to be a civil engineer to be an architect.
1: Yeah, what was it about architecture that made you fall in love with it? Was it the aesthetic, uh, the art, or could it have been the the design aspect or its similarity to engineering?
0: No, 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 no. And I don't think I don't think it's love of no, no. I don't think it's necessarily love of art. I do appreciate art and everything, but I think it's love of design. Being able to bring an idea from your mind, from your head onto a piece of paper or a piece of computer and then slowly building that idea up to be something that people actually occupy and live in and also so the idea you kind of bring an idea to life in a sense but also the, the effect you have by designing whether they are product or architecture how, that impact you have on people in term of yeah, it's just like it's like giving birth, but to ideas. I know, I know it sounds a bit weird, but yeah, just it's like it's like nah, it's imagine right. me thinking about this proposal or this architecture, and it's just in my head. It's a thought, and all of a sudden, that thought becomes some lines, and those lines become a bit of a sketch, and that sketch becomes a three D model, and three D model builds and slowly, 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 you get this thing that people actually occupy, and it all originates from your kind of small little brain cells, and I, I that fascinates me. So, yeah, and also I think is what inspires me from the Opera House and your Olsen is that the legacy that architecture can leave for you as a person That's right? and how Indeed. you can actually influence a whole country, not just a city, a whole country by that piece of architecture that becomes a national symbol, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about purpose. You're obviously a very driven person. Did architecture lead you to your purpose or or did your sense of purpose lead you into architecture as a career
0: i guess it depends how you define purpose right so i think it's finding your purpose it's a it's, it's a big journey and i don't think there's ever an answer in my personal opinion so i'm still i'm still searching for that purpose and i guess architecture has been has played a big role in it and played a big role in influencing me and actually making me able to design and understand what my purpose is through architecture but at the same time I think I've got some personal purpose that I believe and I explore and try to do that might not relate closely to architecture but I guess they overlap in a sense but at the end of the day I don't think I don't think I can tell you whether my purpose has been fulfilled in architecture directly but I think definitely it's been a great journey so far to actually try and find the actual purpose and i think you as a personal personal opinion i don't think you ever kind of find that purpose is more like an evolving purpose the more you evolve the more you mature the bigger the purpose the different the purpose becomes and i guess in a sense yes and no a short answer (laughs) i remember when we
1: met before coronavirus started to have this interview Mm -hmm. and you know, back when it was, it was just in China, it was all just memes. And yeah, back it was just all just memes and memes and fun yeah. times. <laughs> <laughs> just on all this downtime, you know, with the yeah, quarantining, no. do you feel like it's given you a lot of time to think about where
0: you've been and and where you're going? Well, I think I think I've been I've been seeing and hearing many different kind of what do you call them? many different approaches to this time so many people actually ha- do have a lot of free time but I've been really busy working and actually doing my masters that I've actually not had a chance to be that free to actually consider those kind of events so for me it's been more like work 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 and kind of trying to get the best out of the situation now I do get your point in terms of this makes you reflect more on what you do and how you do it look that question is always in my mind as a just as alka it's always in my head is am I doing am I doing am I doing great in my, in the term of in the term of am I developing myself not doing better I think I think am I developing am I growing am I becoming the next better version of myself and I think that has been a, a has been a big part of the process for the past several years Mm. but i think it's become so natural built within me that i don't like necessarily can answer you a direct question like a direct time and tell you oh yesterday i was thinking about it but i think it's a rather a built-in program that i just go by
1: yeah yeah sorry i'll get just on your arrival into australia what were your first thoughts about the assyrian community I mean, you just arrived into, a, into the diaspora and you see a, a Syrian community here that has been here for, for established for many years. What were your first thoughts?
0: Uh, so, look, I, I arrived in that age when you don't pay too much attention to those things, I think, and it's, in a sense. Um, yes, I did see the, there's a big community. There is great churches activities and uh, really, really well-educated people that, that I've come across, and, and at the other end of the spectrum, people that totally give up. Um, so I guess that the idea I did I didn't pay much attention, to be honest, to that specific that specific kind of moment of the Assyrian community. Because at the same time, I think what played a major role in that is that we actually lived away from the where the Assyrian community is located in Sydney. So, uh,
1: um, and just to clarify for our viewers, uh, most yeah. of the Assyrian community is located in Fairfield. Fairfield is about thirty-five kilometers or twenty miles uh, west of, of Sydney, speaking, yeah. You are not living in near Fairfield.
0: Yeah, so we lived in in an area called Rockdale. So, which is I don't know how many kilometers from the city, but I'll just use a drive. So, it's about twenty-minute drive from the city. I guess we came here because my uncle was living around these areas and we wanted some support while we established ourselves. And since we established ourselves here, it become kind of harder to move move away because we've got, again, you build that network and we don't want to start again from zero. Well, not zero, but you don't want to start back again. Uh, but we'll see what's going to happen there. But initially, yeah, I got I got kind of put in this community where there is a lot of, it's a very mixed community. It's a very mixed community around these areas. Now, again, a lot of um, Middle Middle Eastern not many Syrians, but a lot of Middle Eastern. So, uh, for example, Lebanese, some Iraqis, but I think majority are like around Lebanese. But again, we don't want to gentrify this area, but rather Macedonians, Macedonians Greek, so a lot of really different ethnicities, I guess. And that's what I'm trying to get onto. So really came across a diverse set of contexts and diverse sets of beliefs and communities that I came across. And I guess that kind of lifted my attention a little bit away from whether if, whether if I lived in Fairfield, I'd have been really focused on the Assyrian community as a, as, as a whole. But, but rather, look, I, I was still involved with with different youth activities and different things, but but it just meant that being away from the community gave me the opportunity to kind of look at the bigger picture and see what other people and other other communities are doing. And in a sense, I didn't have that sense of like, I do not think of communities and backgrounds that much, but rather just like, I just, just individuals inspire me and I like look up to them regardless of their background.
1: Sure. Do you feel that being away from Fairfield, from the Assyrian community, uh, gave you any advantages uh, besides gossip?
0: <laughs> For, well, yes, 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 and no at the same time. Because again, you're still living in an Assyrian family, so you still live in that context, but just being that, a step away, or like two degrees away from that influence, can be well. At least for me, was a good was a good thing. Yeah. Did you experience any bullying or antagonism
1: when you were within the Assyrian community?
0: Oh yes. Yeah. Look, I didn't experience much because everyone I came across was relatively nice, and I always used to go with either my cousins or relatives so again there was always someone there that knows these people but generally speaking yes yes that everyone it was it was a bit comforting but at the same time you could you could see that people know you are new and people don't like migrants in a sense even though they're they migrants or they're second generation or first generation or whatever you want to call it but yeah people get that sense of oh we are better or like oh what is that guy doing? But anyway, it was, in a sense, yes, I did get a sense of relief, by at the same time I came across a couple of individuals, that potentially ruined that kind of sense of relief.
1: Yeah. So, I just wanted to ask, the Assyrian community, well, when I was growing up in the Assyrian community, in the early 90s, you had your wave of... Gulf War migrants, yes <laughs> and you, you had subsequent waves uh, of Assyrian migrants. The one term pejorative term that separated us yeah. from them was Tazatia, or TT, and that was a term that uh, was bandied about to separate the recent arrivals from those that were more established here. Yeah, well... Did you experience that term here?
0: Yeah, so I think, I think I've think i heard it, but at the same time, I'm telling you, like, I wasn't too involved. So I've heard a lot of that happen within the schools or whether you, interf- you interface with people that, like, kind of 12 hours a day or something, six hours a day. But I was, my, t- my kind of contact points were very limited to these big groups and big kind of Assyrian gathering, whether they were, like, events or or uh, parties, or whatever it was, it was limited to maybe two, three, four hours. So I didn't get to see much of that, to be honest. But at the same time, I've heard really, really bad story and actually disappoints me that people within our community can be so ignorant and so so entitled to call other people like those kind of names, and their parents were actually being bullied and called the same thing because they were Tazatia or TTs. And I really don't. I really don't even use that phrase because I refuse to use it. But I'm just mentioning it here because we are on this and we're trying to touch on this point. I totally, I totally refuse to use this this term because I think it builds it builds that kind of culture that is okay to say it, and it's actually absolutely not okay.
1: Well said, Alkar. Well
0: said. At the end of the day, we are all Assyrian. Exactly. At the end of the day, we are all Assyrians, or an even a better term. At the end of the day, we're all humans. So. yeah. Um, just yep. because you got it a bit better than um, I did or other people did and you are blessed or lucky to be born in this country because of the sacrifice that your parents had to uh, offer or do to bring you here and or, get, or be here for you to be born here doesn't mean you're any better than any person that got it way worse than you have.
1: Our accents tell us a lot about where we're f- from but they also tell us about who we are as people. And I just want to remark, Al that you've been here for eight years and you've largely lost your accent.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I guess I've, I've, I've worked hard on that aspect of trying to learn the language to be able to grow and develop. And um, I think I have to put a disclaimer, of, and I'm sorry for every word that I pronounce um, in a bad way, but I don't really, I don't really care. I don't really care <laughs> because that's the part, of, that's the part of the thing. People think the journey ends somewhere. Like everyone, when everyone talks to me, is like, you got such a good English, like blah, blah, blah. When, like the process never stops. I still yeah. learn, learn how to pronounce some new words and I stuck on, I get stuck on some other words and I stumble mm-hmm. and I totally butcher my Instagram posts sometimes because I did not spell something right. And you know what? That's part of who I am. That's part of, that's part of the kind of, the fingerprint of being being a migrant, and I do- totally embrace it. If I spell something wrong, yeah. if I say something wrong, as long as you get the point, I'm totally fine. Unless that's in an exam, which I try to write in the best way I can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But other- otherwise, otherwise, it's it's actually such a such a big big thing because it, it never stops. Like I always think, oh, I'm getting I'm getting English, I'm getting better, but always you learn something new. You come across some amazing uh, academic or amazing lecturer that is speaking such a high terms and you try to catch up with all of that and it, it, it is it is a still a disadvantage i think i think i've i don't think i've mastered english in that sense but i still work as hard as possible to make up for that kind of obstacle so i guess with that i'll, I'll share what i'll share what what happened in the beginning and how i think i got but i, I think kind of reverse engineering my process how i got better with english was that First of all, I was away from the community, as we mentioned before. And yes, although I could use Arabic to communicate with some people, I refused to do that. I was trying to use English, not because I was ashamed of my Arabic or, or, or Assyrian, or, or I wanted to isolate myself because, quote-unquote, people be like, oh, or you're not speaking Assyrian because you're ashamed. Not, not because of that at all. I'm super proud of Assyrian, but because I wanted to develop my English. And again, I got close. I had friends that were come from non arabic speaking background, so I had to speak. My best friend, for example, from the Intensive English Centre, is from Kenya, and we pretty much had to speak English to each other. And the one thing I learned through the process is you cannot be shy about who you are or mispronouncing words. And that's what I did. Then I kept on going by um, pronouncing, uh, saying things in the wrong way, and people corrected me, people laughed. And you know what? I learned, I, I, I didn't take it to heart, I kind of used that actually as a fuel for me to learn more and and be better. And I did. I I kept learning and I kept developing myself. And I still, as I mentioned, till today, people correct me and say, oh, you shouldn't say that or that impression is not like this. And yes, it's funny. I laugh about it, but then I write it down or I try and make a mental kind of note to actually next time if I say the same thing, I should say it the right way because there's no excuse for me. You don't find it annoying or offensive? oh i i I do well, it just depends how you are you're gonna correct people at the same time. It's all about the style some people do it on purpose to bring you down, and some people genuinely care for you and actually do it so for your own benefit but i guess I guess a really hard great zone of how things happen, but yeah, people actually don't like don't like being corrected in general because they're kind of insecure about oh, again my assumptions some people are insecure about their ideas or their, their way they speak and they're already actually conscious about it and that makes kind of highlights it even more and people don't like it. But I think actually be, being insecure about it and actually identifying that it's not your strongest asset should be should be the first kind of base for you to start and build up this, this kind of thing. And actually I, I, I used to tell people when I was in high school or even even till now, if I say something wrong, please correct me. Please tell me or not in front of everyone, of course, because that'd be a bit. If if you're presenting something and people correct you in front of like thirty, forty people, again, a bit, a bit. It's it's a bit. It's a bit hard trying to save some face. But at the same time, it's like, oh, drag me to take me to the side, tell me that you said this, this, this was not correct. I'll happily, happily, actually correct myself, and I always try and get as many, as much feedback as possible from people and kind of work on it because again as i mentioned we we live in a journey regardless if you are a migrant someone born here you always work and try and being better and better and progress with your life so there is actually no point of taking it taking feedback to heart yeah that's a great attitude to have on assyrianism Mm
1: -hmm. what is great about being assyrian in your opinion
0: Oh man, he's he asked so many hard questions. Uh, <laughs> but let's let, let me let me let me kind of I think what's great about community in a sense in and like the whole global kind of Assyrian community is that we are a very resilient nation. We've been through so much. So 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 much. And again so much. And yet we come across to the other side in in a sense and in a comparison, always better, I think at least my personal beliefs are that we kind of, there's always really big obstacles. And I don't think even big is the right word is like enormous obstacles, detrimental obstacles that come to have come on our nation and on our people. And yet the people actually come across on the other end with a better view or somewhat manage to rebuild their lives or, or, or kind of develop in a sense. So So that, I'm not sure if that's been kind of programmed in our DNA or something, but I think we do that relatively very well, relatively very well. We've lived through a lot. And I think as a general nation, we do that like in a very good sense. We come somewhere, we've had so many genocides done against us, so much persecution, yet we come across as really, we come on the other hand, on the other end, being optimistic and being able to, at least a majority of us, being able to develop. Now, what we do really well in the community here is I definitely think there's a lot of there's a lot of good people around. There's a lot of inspirational people in our community here in Australia and in Sydney in particular. And I think the sense of also helping communities. Now maybe that's a bit and again, people are not gonna like me saying this, especially the young ones. Maybe the younger generation don't don't feel it much, but the older you grow the closer you come to your community and the more you want to help. So that sense of community and that sense of someone looking after another is actually, it's a big thing here, especially in the older demographics, if I may say. And again, this is a really big blanket statement. And Again, there is young people that are amazing, absolutely amazing at supporting and helping other people. But generally in that older demographic, you see that a bit more and that's really, really inspiring, especially for new arrivers, for people that are migrating, for people that are building their life from scratch, from zero. We've got a lot of support. We've got a lot of initiatives from whether it's a church, whether it's a, it's the Assyrian communities themselves doing so many stuff to support other people. And I think that's definitely pay, pays in the, in, the, in the long run.
1: Yeah. What would you like to see improve in the Assyrian community? Putting on an Qaeda lens, how would you see improvement?
0: Putting putting a lens, and I'm gonna just go from my age group or what I've seen through my own experience. So a lens of Alkar pr- applied to that problem because there might be bigger things that we could improve on that I've totally missed. But this is my vision. What I've seen, I've I've kind of come across again many Assyrian many Assyrian uh, from the younger demographics, and as much as I love their passion, they're some really smart kid and some amazing kids. That I that the theme that I keep seeing. Appear and appear all the time through my engagement with this with our community is that we are very um, secluded or we try to be very secluded. We kind of live if you live in Fairfield or Fairfield areas, you're very surrounded by the Assyrian community. If you go to an Assyrian school, you're supported, you're, su- you're surrounded by Assyrian people. And if your friends, best friends, and family are all Assyrians, then literally you live this in this bubble of Assyrian, right? Mm, yep. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a really great thing. But the theme that I see through an al lens and the al experience that I've been and in contact with these people, and again, some people have done really great and come across with a lot of amazing stuff from that. But at the same time, the majority I've seen is that our youth is, is not open to other ideas, does not question, is not critical about different things and different themes that are imposed or told to you by other people just because you live in this bubble, right? Yeah. So I guess it's always it's my biggest, biggest kind of advice to the young people when I speak in schools and stuff is travel a little bit. Not now because yeah. we've got the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, <laughs> but when you get a chance, tra- travel actually a lot, travel.
1: Because
0: yeah. that opens up your eye. You yeah. think you, um, you are such a big deal in this world, but then also you start traveling and you realize there's so, so many different cultures big cultures, interesting cultures, totally different to yours that are going to challenge your way of thinking, going to challenge your beliefs. And I think that's part of going up. You cannot get stuck in this bubble. At the same time, a lot of the things that happen is that these guys get stuck in whether they're in school or that community and all of a sudden they go to universities or college or whatever you call them. uh, And all of a sudden they get shocked by the amount of different opinion and how other people actually very opinionated and they'll start questioning your sense of belief and who you are and how do you represent yourself and all of a sudden just because you lived around Assyrians you can't explain yourself very well because you you always get that sense of oh he knows who I am Assyrian whatever. and they get to know everything about your culture and people start questioning you people that are foreigners have never heard of Assyrians ever never ever and they're like oh who are these people and all of a sudden you get now have to explain yourself and I think we do we do it, we do do it, good, but I think that's one of the things that we should work on, especially our youth should work on, is travel. Yes, the internet is good and you get to learn about, a lot more about people through the internet, but at the same time, first-hand experience, travel, different countries, different cultures, see what people do for a living, how they live, what do they do. All that is going to influence you and, and make you grow as a person. And I think you come back with that better sense of community and how other people are doing it. And actually, start criticizing some of the things within the system, the Assyrian system, that actually need to be questioned.
1: It seems like you're asking for more critical
0: thinking in the community. Exactly, critical thinking, critical thinking, and critical kind of improvements. You need, you need that. You need, you need that to happen for us to to develop. Yeah. Would you regard
1: it as an obligation for more critical thinking among the Assyrian community?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's a kind of what do you call them um, citizen citizen duty.
1: Yes, it is duty. Yeah,
0: you have to be a critical thinker. Otherwise, what are you doing? Just working, eating and sleeping? Like you need to some sort of critically think about different things and different information and be able to filter actually information and what's true and what's not and be able to stand up for yourself if you get questioned or if you get kind of in a in a messy situation. Sure.
1: In light of what you just said, what would be your message for young Assyrians today?
0: Well, yeah, well, well I think the world we live in right now—it's a very global world, right? You come across so many people, so many sets of beliefs, so many ideas, so many different uh, nationalities, so many different contexts, political contexts, and you just gotta have to be able to understand the other pe- the other person's opinion and and the other person's that comes from a totally different background and does not care that you are a Syrian, but rather cares who are you as a person. So what are you going to say then and how are you going to deal with that situation? And again, our, our institute do some great, great work. I'm not trying to deteriorate any of that. They do great work and they've been doing a lot of amazing work. But at the same time, I'm, I'm challenging our youth to kind of explore a bit more and be more open-minded.
1: Yeah, which in turn helps create more robust institutions.
0: And develop on it. Like, yeah, you, if you've, you've got given something – and. You're not going to keep doing it the same way. You're going to have to like criticize it. All right, it's been working. One, two, three has been working really well. Five, six, seven is not. We can improve on it. Let's improve on it. And that's how you're going to build a better system. And then you hand it on to the next generation. and They go like, okay, actually one, two, three is not working that very well. Kind of like iteration. Iteration. Iteration and then design thinking. Design on, thinking,
1: again. I've heard that term so many times. But in your own words, what is design thinking?
0: What is design thinking? Oh, God, why do you do this to me? Um, <laughs> you're going to get me in so much trouble. <laughs> again, design thinking depends at the same time. I think depends on the person. Many things to many people. Well, I guess, and, and a, again, an umbrella statement of design thinking that's actually running through a problem and trying to find a solution for that problem through design thinking. And the design thinking is very complex in a sense that you can go through iterations and there's different method of design thinking. But yeah, I guess iteration is one of the big methods. So you design, 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 test, design, test, design, and then kind of the loop. So you actually, like, okay, you go from problem to solution to prototype to test. And I'm drawing with my hand uh, (laughs) to test, to test, to kind of go back to iterate. And and then kind of the, the, the loop keeps going. And you can always, design thinking never stop. You have to make a stop sometime and just go ahead with what you have because you can always make anything and everything better and better 90% of the time. Yeah.
1: We understand that your inspiration for into architecture was the opera house, but inspiration and motivation are two separate things. Was it design thinking that motivated you into not, becoming an architect? Not, not really. No,
0: not really. I think I was – no, as I said, I was very engineer kind of focused based on my father's inspiration but yeah, when I got to here in high school, I had a subject called engineering studies in that there was a task when we were asked to design a car kettle, a kettle for to be put in a car. And just through that process of actually thinking of the problem and how you can do it and what you can do inspired me. And I was like, I really want to design. I don't want to just construct things or build things. I actually want to design them and be, that, be the kind of brain or that that person that comes with a grand idea, with a big idea, and kind of works through that to make it something. So I think that was a really significant point. But at the same time, as I go through uni, I realize, yes, this is what I kind of want to do. I love it. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it just builds up.
1: Mm. Oh God, finally, it's the signature question we ask all of our guests at the Assyrian Podcast. Yes. We have listeners from all over the world. If you had one thing to say to them, what would it be?
0: Stay at home. COVID nineteen, <laughs> <laughs> stay home, uh, and stay safe. I guess that's that's kind of the, the my Zoom Zoom sign off. Uh, stay stay safe, guys. Stay safe. <laughs> uh, no, no. I guess <laughs> I guess what I can say is, um, and I think this is a very general statement and uh, cliche. If so, so you may say, but I think every person you come across whether they are Assyrian or non-Assyrian, they're going through a journey and you don't know what's going, what they've been through, what they are going through. So I think my biggest thing for everyone is to be kind, actually just be kind to everyone else around you. I think you've got to be kind to different people. I know it sounds a like cliche again, but people go through different journeys and I've come across many, many people that didn't know what my journey was and they were just absolute nice people and I've come across people who were totally, I don't want to use a bad word, ignorant and up themselves, if you so wanna say it, or like so like so up there that they thought they were better than everyone that criticized you in a in a really in a really bad way that made you feel bad about yourself. And and some of them actually had scarred me in a sense, but I've I've healed from that and I've used that as my fuel to move forward and get better. But at the same time, I think my biggest, biggest kind of motto is to be kind. That's one of them. And the second one is, I say, hard work beats talent. And that's kind of uh, uh, a caption on my on my Instagram profile. And I genuinely, genuinely believe in it. I'm not the smartest person on, on, on earth. And I've definitely met smarter and more talented people in my life. But they're not doing what, I do, what I'm what i doing. And they'll, I think they will, they will be able to do what I'm doing is because of the amount of work you put in. You're a perfect reflection of the work or lack of work you put in yourself. So I guess, in a sense, work hard on whatever you, set some goals, work hard and be kind and stay safe and stay at home.
1: al thank you very much for joining us today on the Assyrian Podcast.
0: No worries, mate. No worries. Absolutely. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to another edition of the Assyrian Podcast. Please review, rate and share wherever you found us. Until next week. Cheers.